From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq. We have a fantastic show for you today. I want to talk today about the Grocery Code of Conduct. This is a proposal by the federal government that grocery stores would have to adhere by that would make it more transparent the prices that they pay, the grocers, to suppliers and help us understand why we pay certain prices for certain things. Now, there has been some criticism lauded at this Grocery Code of Conduct from big grocers saying this will actually increase prices for consumers. Uh, but this is in the beginning stages. We really actually don't know the details of what's in the Grocery Code of Conduct yet. Uh, but we will be speaking to a professor from the University of Guelph uh, that will talk about you know, what this could do for consumer prices, if anything, and how this may be a positive move uh, for grocers um, as they move to be more transparent and more clear about how they price the products on their shelves. As well, we'll be talking about holiday travel later in the program. It's an expensive time to get away, Christmas being one of the most expensive for sure. Uh, but a lot of us have been cooped up for the last three years from the pandemic, and we want to get away. We want to go on holiday. We want to see family. Uh, but some of those ticket prices are just out of reach. So we'll have somebody on from Aeroplan uh, talking about ways that they're making it easier for Canadians to access uh, flights and how you can enhance your experience, changes that are going on in their company, and just general tips on how we can save money when it comes to holiday travel. One number one tip I can give you right now, shop early. Just like with anything else, the earlier you shop for something, the more likely you are to get the best value out of that purchase. Uh, before we go, I want to talk a little bit about a new report uh, by the Canadian uh, Housing Agency, the CMHC, uh, talking about how over 2 million mortgages in the next couple of years are going to be faced with what they're calling interest rate shock. Uh, this is in uh, mortgages that will come up for renewal in the next 24 months that will be renewing in a much higher interest rate environment. And I keep sending that message that if you are in a fixed rate mortgage and you know your mortgage is coming up for renewal in the next two years, do the math now as to how those payments will change because they are raising the alarm that many Canadians may not be able to afford their payments once those mortgages come up for renewals. So the best way to prepare for that is to know what those payments will be and you can make adjustments now. Number one being lump sum payments on your lower interest mortgage uh, to really help mitigate uh, some of those costs in the future. We have a fantastic show coming up. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. There is a new grocery code of conduct that's near completion that's hoping to help Canadians, uh, consumers specifically, save some money and have some predictability as to what the prices will be when they're out shopping for food for their family. Now, it's coming under some criticism. Uh, some companies are saying this is actually going to raise prices. Uh, but really, if you go to the Grocery Code of Conduct website, they say it's going to increase transparency. It's going to make it easier for Canadians to assume what prices will be when they are out shopping. To talk about what the Grocery Code of Conduct is, we are joined by 
by Professor Michael Van Massau. He's Professor of Food, Agricultural, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Professor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, for those of us who don't know what this is, can you just explain to us high level, what is the Grocery Code of Conduct? Well, Broadly, a grocery code of conduct is whatever the industry wants it to be or or the government wants it to be. In this case, specifically what we're talking about is a set of rules uh, governing the relationship between grocers and their suppliers. It is intended to prevent large grocers who can leverage large shares of the consumer market from, from extracting unfair advantages from their suppliers. So it is it is a set of rules and guidelines for what you can do, what you can't do, and how much you can charge. Now, this is in uh, direct reaction to what's been happening with grocery prices and inflation. We know that uh, grocery inflation is still, food inflation is still higher than headline inflation. And that a lot of people will ask, well, why is that? You know, why is food still costing me more than uh, inflation is at, at the moment? But could this prevent things like the bread fixing scandal, which many of us are familiar with from a few years ago? Well, I mean, I, I think it's important to recognize that that the companies that have been penalized for bread price fixing are suppliers. So the, 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 those those types of things are already illegal, and so a grocery code of conduct is unlikely to to change those. A grocery code of conduct would say, for example, that uh, this is. Uh, these are the types of fees grocers can charge their suppliers. These are the, uh, the, the these are the types of payment terms they can ask for. So the devil is in the details, and it remains to be seen. But it really isn't necessarily going to do anything with respect to illegal behavior around price fish fixing or 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 working together. It really governs that relationship between uh, grocers and their suppliers. Now, for the last uh, 18 months to two years, I, like any other consumer at a grocery store, has been, have been getting pr uh, uh, sticker shock. And then the following week, I'll, I'll get this sort of scratch my head feeling where that same product has gone down, you know, maybe 20% because all of a sudden maybe it's on sale, but it just feels like the prices sort of swing quite uh, quite a lot more than what I, was, I, what I experienced before the pandemic. Could this grocery code of conduct help consumers just, uh, like I said in the intro, there, just make it a little bit more predictable as to what kind of prices we should expect when we are out grocery shopping? Well, I, th I think, again, in this case, the devil is in the details. We haven't seen what the final, uh, what the final uh, draft of a grocery code of conduct will look like. But what you're talking about really is consumer facing. It is the types of strategies that grocers can do to use to, uh, to engage and attract customers. You know, we see things like lost leaders, the things at the back of the store that bring us into the store, items on special to, that are in the flyer that bring us in. Unless there are things that we haven't heard about in the code of conduct, really the code of conduct isn't going to be doing much relative to the types of pricing strategies grocers can engage in with their, uh, with their, uh, with their customers. It might say here are things that you can and cannot ask your suppliers for which which conceivably would make it more predictable in terms of what the price that consumers are getting are but but 
right now, as envisioned, it's really more about that relationship back to suppliers rather than forward to consumers. Now, the reaction, especially from Loblaws, which has been covered pretty heavily in the media, has been negative. Can you talk to me about what grocery store chains are saying about this grocery code of conduct and how that could impact prices uh, for people like you and I? Well, some grocers have said they welcome uh, a, a code of conduct, and it's really about leveling the playing field and 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 having a consistent set of rules. The the grocers that have complained about the grocery code of conduct are Loblaws, uh, who is the biggest grocer in Canada, and Walmart, who's not the biggest in Canada but is the biggest in North America, uh, who who will have who will have more power. To, to pressure their suppliers to make concessions or to pay fees and and those sorts of things. So my you know some grocers like like Sobeys have said we welcome a code of conduct for 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 consistency and predictability. The big players have said well we're worried about a code of conduct. They probably have the most to lose because they have the most power in the relationship with those suppliers. And that's why they've argued that uh that a grocery code of conduct may increase prices uh, and it may decrease the availability of certain products. Let me give you an example. If if I'm a large grocer uh, and uh, I'm extracting a bunch of fees from my uh, listing fees or uh, product development fees or all sorts of things from my suppliers, those fees are going straight to my bottom line. If I'm limited in how much and which fees I can charge, that will come off my bottom line as a grocer. And I'll either swallow hard and just absorb it, or I will pass some of those things on the to, to consumers. Now, the degree to which they are able to do that will depend on the degree to which other grocers are constrained by the by the uh by the code of conduct. So it it may be that it will just squeeze profits of those big guys and not have a whole lot of positive effect on prices. But in the short run, it's unlikely to have a negative impact on prices. As to availability, uh, there are some products that grocers don't make a lot of margins on. Uh, suppliers pay fees to have it on the shelf. If, they're, if grocers aren't allowed to charge those fees anymore, some of those products may, uh, may come off the shelves and that could affect availability. So I think while they're being a little bit less clear on why they are complaining about a code of conduct, I think some of the outcomes those big players have been predicting uh, may not be that far off, uh, off base. Could you give us an example of a product uh, that doesn't have a very big margins that we we could lose if um, if if the grocer feels like well if I can't charge this fee um, I can't afford to put it on the shelves something that we may not see if 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 they did adhere to the code of conduct the way that they're they're seeing it I I, I don't think you'd see it relative to whole categories there wouldn't be sort of these these types of products would come off the shelf it might be some specialty products within categories that are slow movers so so you know if if you look and and i'll often sound like a grumpy old man when i say this but you know 20 or 30 years ago when we went into a grocery store we had much less choice than we do today and there are products now and it's not that i want 
to choose between 40 different types of mustard when I go to the grocery store, but there are some people who want that mustard and others who want that one. And it's some of those slow movers within categories rather than whole categories that might, might disappear. So we won't have less access to types of products. We'll have less access to the types of choice that we've become accustomed to. Sometimes there's very specific things I'll bring home, like extra spicy Dijon mustard with some other ingredient added with sriracha or something. And then you never see it again. And that must be one of those things where it just doesn't move and it's too expensive to stock. And like you said, we, you know, if, if the, if the, if the grocer has to pay, doesn't get those fees, uh, they may not feel incentivized even to stock it anymore. Uh, professor. Grocery shelf space is like real estate, right? It's, is. You have to generate revenue from every linear foot of uh, of real estate. So you either need to make a lot of margin on a slow moving item, or move a lot of it. And and some of those specialty products, that was a perfect example, are the types of things that that do disappear because they move slowly, or or might increasingly disappear uh, be- because there is less ability to keep them on the shelf. Now, it sounds like this grocery code of conduct will more be focused on the relationship between the grocer and the supplier. But if consumers want to, uh, you know, in the future, check if the conduct is being followed, is there any way they can actually do that? Well, again, once once we see the the parameters of this code of conduct, and, and there are really two outcomes. The first is the government has said, we want to see a voluntary code of conduct. We've heard some of the players say we're not keen on it. We're not sure. And and so uh, if they come up with a voluntary code of conduct, I expect within that there will be some sort of checking or complaints mechanism. And if the industry doesn't come up with it themselves, the government has clearly said we have an appetite for uh for regulating this if you don't come up with a voluntary code of conduct. And so in that circumstance, we would likely see uh, governments uh, regulate a code of conduct and within that have a central agency that will review and, and will field complaints from consumers or from suppliers who feel like they aren't being treated fairly within the within the rules of the game. We're speaking to Michael Von Massau. He's professor of food, agriculture, and resource economics at the University of Guelph. Uh, you use the word volunteer. Uh, you know, this is not something that is going to be law. Uh, do you think that this needs to be uh, something that's legislated, that's something that has to be legally followed by grocers in order for it to actually be effective? Well, again, it depends on the dispute settlement mechanism. They, they we're, we're calling it a voluntary... A code of conduct, but the government has said either come up with a code of conduct yourselves or we'll impose one. So in this case, it is a voluntary one in as much it is as it isn't regulated. And I think the government has said that that if you don't do it and we're not happy with it, we will regulate it. So I think that as long as everybody signs on uh, and participates and there is a clear dispute settlement mechanism, then it could work. Uh, again, the devil is in the details, but it, it, it could work to level the playing field between uh, large grocers and their suppliers and between smaller grocers and larger grocers because uh, the smaller grocers aren't as able to extract uh, concessions from their suppliers as as the big guys are. So I think it could be effective. Uh, 
if everybody commits to it. And and what's pretty clear is if everyone doesn't commit to it, there'll be one imposed, which will have uh, regulatory uh, teeth to it. Final question to you, Professor. Do you? Uh, there's been a lot of criticism from a consumer perspective that prices have remained. Uh, we've heard artificially high. Uh, there's been, you know, greedflation has been a headline that I've seen over and over again, where customers just feel like, why aren't prices coming down? Do you think that that's a fair assessment of what's been happening with food prices over the last year and a half? Frank, frankly, I think that if there is any role of supermarkets or grocers in the the rates of food price inflation we've seen it is relatively small if you look at at annual at annual reports and 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 the way margins have been there's been uh, there's been some impact on some grocers but they compete with others and and overall i would say there's there's no evidence that grocers have had extreme profits or or driven greedflation here there are lots of fundamental reasons that food prices have gone up uh, we've seen uh, now some food prices start to come down we've seen food price decreases three out of the last four reporting months even though the annual rate uh, remains uh, relatively higher than than other inflation. I, I think that there are the the war in Ukraine, extreme weather events, the Canadian exchange rate. You know, I can go on and on reasons that food prices have been high and higher than others. So uh, I I think it's not necessarily fair that all of the attention has been on grocers. Have they been Have they been perfect? No. Uh, but but if they have contributed to inflation at all, it's it's a relatively small contribution. My best advice to anybody who's feeling like food is too expensive is change where you shop. That often will save you 20, 30% right away if you stop going to the posher grocery store and just you know make a left and go to the go to the grocery store that doesn't have as many bells and whistles. Well, I think you're exactly right. That you know, we've we've seen some people change, and we've seen grocers respond to that by changing some of their stores to to their cheaper sort of discount banners. But but there is different. There are differences between stores, and you can save if you if you shop around. And I think we can also we can also uh, save if we shop a bit differently. We tend to be creatures of habit. Uh, if broccoli was in our basket this week, it's likely to be in our basket this week. If we shop seasonally, if we shop those specials that you were cl- uh, complaining about earlier and 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 are willing to be flexible and to explore products that we might not have been as uh, been as positive on before, uh, I think that 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 there are lots of things we can do as individuals. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, getting us up to date on what's happening with the Grocery Code of Conduct and what we can expect uh, in the months ahead uh, when it comes to food prices and what grocers and the federal government are doing about it. Well, thanks for having me and having a great day. Yeah, thanks. That's Michael Van Massau. He's Professor of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. When we come back, we're going to talk about how expensive it is to travel this holiday season and some tips on what you can do to maybe cut some of those costs down. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed-Huck. 
Welcome back to the show. Before we get to our next segment, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. I have a relationship with Air Canada. I work as a consultant, um, helping their employees uh, find ways to be more financially well. My title there is Financial Wellness Consultant. So before we have this conversation with our next guest, I thought our listeners should know about that. Holiday travel is coming up and this year is expected to be busy as we start to get used to our new normal after three years of pandemic restrictions. So many of us want to travel and get out there, but the cost of it can be pretty hefty. And many of us might feel like with today's inflationary environment and way cost of living is that it may not be something that we can afford. But there are clever ways that you can mitigate some of those costs and actually enhance your experience. One of those ways is using your loyalty points. One of those loyalty points is Aeroplan. And Scott O'Leary joins me now. He's vice president of loyalty and product at Air Canada to talk about some of the features that they now have for their customers. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me today. So, you know, I said in the beginning that we expect travel to be pretty busy this holiday season. What are your expectations, uh, you know, six weeks ahead uh, of the busy Christmas rush? Uh, it's exactly that. The, it's going to be busy, busy, busy. Uh, flights are going to be uh, very full, uh, but we're uh, we're ready for it. Uh, you know, I think you know, in general, uh, the, you know, the average Canadian, uh, you know, about half of the Canadian population travels at least uh, once a year. Uh, and uh, when you consider the the less occasional travelers, uh, you know, they we they all tend to travel around the same time during those holiday peaks. And so uh, you are going to have very full flights and it's going to be a mix of frequent and infrequent travelers. And uh, I think what we've noticed here, especially in the last year, is folks are not only uh, traveling a little bit more than they have in the past, but they're also traveling. Uh, they're also traveling further and they're staying longer uh, where they're going. And there is a lot more emphasis now on traveling well. Uh, I'm on a number of different uh, social media sites that sort of help people, you know, find ways that they can upgrade their travel, travel business class, which obviously makes for that much better of an experience. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, something that seems like it's really expensive and out of reach for a lot of us can be possible through using things like loyalty points uh, to, to get us to that, uh, to that, uh, that end. That's right. We're definitely seeing that trend uh, on this end. And again, I think it's explained uh, by that idea of uh, folks are now taking, uh, they're budgeting more time uh, for their trips, for the trips that they're taking. You know, maybe they're going to do a little bit of work while they're away. But uh, I think more and more uh, folks are taking longer trips. And because they can take a longer trip, uh, I'm sorry, take a longer trip, they find themselves going further. And because they're going further, the idea of of making the trip a little more premium becomes more relevant, more uh, more attractive, uh, and more desirable. Uh, and so, for that reason, you know, I think what we're finding is more uh, more folks are buying business class than they ever have before, uh, or seeing benefits in uh, buying fares that might give you access uh, to our lounges, uh, etc. Uh, and they're also uh, paying more attention to their loyalty programs and the loyalty rewards that come with that because. Uh, in many respects, either if it's uh, if you've had an opportunity uh, to travel enough to earn status in the program, or if you've taken on one of our uh, one of our credit cards, especially one of our premium credit cards, these are uh, these are products that we offer that actually give you access to a lot of these amenities, a lot of these premium amenities uh, that were once uh, the exclusive domain uh, of of paid business class uh, and elite travelers. Now, 
uh, you know, really every Canadian has access to, uh, you know, to, to premium check-in, front-of-line access, priority airport services, airport lounges, priority boarding, uh, in some cases just uh, through the credit card that you put in your wallet. Yeah, I mean, it it is um, almost like a, a bit of a game, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, of how you can sort of put all the pieces together and get the best value. I mean, it used to be, you know, loyalty used to be you, you buy a coffee, you get a punch, and then after you get 10, you get a free coffee. <laughs> it's a completely different uh, sort of a system now that, you know, I'm really amazed with how people are able to find ways that they can increase uh, the amount of points that they're getting and, and, and how fast they get to their ultimate goal. Um, do you have any, uh, you know, tips for somebody, you know, you mentioned their uh, uh, premium credit cards, but uh, that's not accessible for anyone. Those are pretty expensive, you know, $600 uh, fee a yearly uh, to have one. Is, is, is there ways that someone who's listening says, you know, I'd like to have uh, uh, you know, a higher status. Uh, how, how could someone do that just from no regular spending uh, in Canada? For sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there are a few ways to do this. You know, there, there's a population uh, of folks uh, and we, we have a fair number of customers that just find themselves traveling a lot, uh, perhaps because of their job or their hobby or some, some combination of that. And that's kind of conventionally, uh, that's uh, that's been uh, what uh, th those have been the primary members of, a, of an airline's loyalty program. Uh, when we set out to redesign Aeroplan, we consciously designed it or redesigned it, I should say, to be attractive to uh, to literally every Canadian uh, that ever find that finds himself ever, uh, ever traveling. Uh, and as part of that design, we specifically sought out to make sure that uh, there were multiple ways that you could actually access what we call doses of luxury. So just kind of sticking on that on that premium thread for just a moment. Uh, I did mention one way. Yes, there's a $600 a year credit card. It's awesome. Uh, it earns you 1.25 Aeroplan points for every dollar that you spend. It means your points are just going to add up that much faster. But it also unlocks access to our most premium properties uh, and uh, in, uh, front of line access uh, through through your entire travel experience. But if if that's too much for you or not just not something that you want to commit to. Uh, just the fact that you're earning Aeroplan points every day and watching your balance build up, that in and of itself can set you up to, to create a premium experience for yourself. Uh, and that ranges from uh, being able to use your points uh, very affordably to pay for a business class ticket uh, to where you're going instead of economy class, or maybe just an upgrade to premium economy on a flight where the premium economy uh, option is offered. We also have uh, customers that just want to upgrade certain elements of their trip. So they might find uh, uh, value in um, using their points to bid for a business class upgrade or use their pay, uh, points to pass for, uh, I'm sorry, use their points to pay for Wi-Fi uh, on board a flight. These are all options uh, that you can actually use your Aeroplan points uh, to pay for uh, at any step of the process. I often hear about days where it's best to book travel. So traveling, you know, midweek will save you some money, maybe uh, booking six months in advance. Are those uh, are those tips actually true? I mean, are those really good habits to have uh, if you if you want to get whether you're paying cash or with or your points uh, to get best value out of, uh, out of the ticket that you're buying? Um, some of the advice uh, still, you know, <laughs> is still applicable, and maybe some of it isn't. Uh, maybe this is the the I can give you a more modern take on on that advice. Uh, number one, it's always good. Uh, the earliest you know uh, that you want to take a trip, it is wise to start shopping and uh, maybe get a reservation on the books because I think in general, 
uh, the earlier book you book, uh, the better value you're going to get out of the loyalty points uh, that you uh, that that you have available to you. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, with Aeroplan, you can even spend a few more, a few extra points, uh, and give yourself the flexibility to perhaps change your mind and not have to pay a change fee uh, when you either redeposit your points or change to a different flight option. So. Uh, it, you know, I think in many respects, it, it it does not hurt you to shop as early as possible. But also, I think that uh, you know, in you know, in some cases, it's not possible. Sometimes uh, trips are last minute. Uh, sometimes they're uh, somewhat on a whim. And on that, my best advice, instead of just saying, you know, book on a Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't I don't know that that advice is necessarily applicable anymore. Uh, but I do think uh, the best advice would be be flexible. You have an idea of where you want to go. Uh, it, uh, but if you have some flexibility on either where you're going or when you're going, and sometimes that's, uh, you know, one day of week versus another, like sometimes look uh, um, one day before or one day after the your target date of travel in both directions. And I think you might find uh, there to be at least one other option on another day or even in the same day that you're looking at uh, that might be, uh, you know, at a very attractive price and a very good value in the loyalty points. Uh, Christmas is coming up. The holidays are infamously expensive uh, for travel. If you haven't booked your flight yet, uh, uh, what could you tell uh, customers who really are hoping to get away, whether it's to see family or maybe just have a, a vacation or over over the Christmas break? Uh, you know, maybe a couple additional pieces of advice, and these are going to be maybe somewhat specific to to Aeroplan. Uh, you know, number one. Uh, uh, you know, there are ways to earn points through everyday activities. And so we're not saying go out and buy points. We're not saying go out and fly a bunch to earn points. Uh, you know, we do have uh, plenty of members that that do uh, one or both of those activities. Uh, but, you know, maybe a way to think about this, if not for these holidays, for the next round of holidays, because next year will come by very quickly. Uh, if, you know, if you could find ways to earn points through the things that you are already doing every day, that's going to be your best return on behavior, your best return on spend, and you'll be really glad you did. Uh, and so, uh, you know, an, an Aeroplan credit card is the best way to do that. You can get, you know, up to $1,400 in travel value just for signing up for the regular $139 a year uh, uh, Aeroplan credit card. And you know, not only not only does the credit card give you great value every day, but you also have the ability to set up a family sharing pool with other members of your family. So you can actually combine your points together, uh, like a joint checking account, uh, and you know, combine your points so that you can actually redeem for awards faster. Well, anything that gets us traveling, I think, is positive. Um, you know, a lot of us have this pent-up uh, feeling that, you know, we haven't been anywhere in so many years. The word staycation stings me now whenever someone <laughs> says, oh, are you thinking of having a staycation? I'm like, no, I don't want to stay home anymore. I want to get out of my house and do something. So uh, I think any way that gets us closer to that goal um, is a good thing. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and getting us up to date on what you're doing with Aeroplan and also uh, just ways that... Uh, we can get out there and travel more, uh, not just during the holidays, but all into the uh, new year. Wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. That's uh, Scott O'Leary. He's Vice President of Loyalty and Product at Air Canada. Uh, talking about uh, Christmas travel, which, you know, we often think of as being quite expensive, and it can be. Of course, it's a busier time, so ticket prices are going to be um, higher and to reflect that, but that doesn't mean that you can't get a, a good experience. And one of the things that Scott was saying was, you know, booking early. So if you know 
that you want to go on a holiday for Christmas 2024, maybe start looking early in the new year when those flights become available, uh, when the, you know, the hotels uh, are starting to book the rooms, because you're going to get the best deal the earlier you look. And it also gives you some time to shop around, right? Which is something I talk about all the time on For What It's Worth, that uh, you know, if you do something in haste, you most likely are going to spend more money uh, than you expected to. If you take your time, look around, do the research, you are going to get best value for whatever it is that you are buying. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, news in the cryptocurrency space uh, that the founder of FTX, a cryptocurrency exchange, um, has been convicted of fraud, of uh, embezzling billions of dollars from customers who had deposits uh, at his exchange, uh, may send a signal that maybe cryptocurrency investing is not for you. But I'm going to give you some tips on how you can invest in cryptocurrency with confidence and places that you should be going to get the right information about any cryptocurrency that you are interested in buying. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina Ahmed Hawk. The best things in life are free. We heard recently how the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman Fried, has been found guilty of embezzling billions of dollars from customers who put money into his exchange. Now, the story is a year long when when it was found out that an accounting error was actually uh, being covered up, uh, a major amount of fraud was being covered up. It wasn't just an accounting error. It was actually a, a major fraud operation that was happening, and it took a year for this conviction to happen. But the problem is, is not necessarily about uh, FTX and the cryptocurrency exchanges, is that what it does for the reputation of cryptocurrencies. Now, there are more than 23,000 cryptocurrencies in the world. Some of them you'll recognize, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance. These are the ones that we have heard more, more and more about, Bitcoin being number one. It's been around since 2009. But most Canadians are still pretty confused as to what the role of uh, cryptocurrency will be in our future and whether it's a place they actually want to invest their money. Now, it's still considered, cryptocurrency that is, an alternative investment. So I really want to focus on that word alternative. It's not a mainstream place where you want to put your money like you do maybe in big bank stocks or big corporations where they pay dividend, they have decades of history and there it's a much more under a much more easier to understand what those companies do. You know when you buy a bank stock, you know exactly what a bank does. When you buy a stock in a furniture company, you know exactly what that company does. Those are things that we can easily understand. And one of the ways I often say that we should be investing is in people and places and companies that we understand exactly what they're doing. So don't be speculative. Don't invest because someone tells you that this is going to do well and you don't truly understand what you're investing in. And this is true for cryptocurrency as well. But for some who've been hearing a lot about cryptocurrency, they may feel like, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to make money in the future if this is truly the way that we are going to exchange money uh, decades from now and the, truly the way that we're going to keep records of transactions uh, decades from now. Uh, there are some easier ways 
to get involved with cryptocurrency investing than buying the actual currency and then keeping the passcode and the the key and everything safe so that when you want to access it, you can. Uh, One of them, of course, is using a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, uh, Despite the fact that FTX collapsed, there are still many that are completely legitimate, uh, many based right here in Canada that you can access. And you can do that through your own um, investigation, your own research. I'm not going to say any names because I don't want to Uh, say that this is a place that I think that you should be investing, but I think that there are still legitimate ones in Canada that you can easily find out about. The other is ETFs. So these are exchange-traded funds, and most of us are pretty familiar with what ETFs are. They're sort of the cheaper mutual fund, right? They've become more popular in the last uh, 15 or so years. Uh, Usually they follow an industry or a bucket of companies that are in the same industry. So you can buy, you know, a finance ETF that has a number of finance companies and banks in there, maybe insurance companies. You can follow a gold ETF that simply follows the the performance of gold. You can follow a uh, ETF that follows the performance of the Toronto Stock Exchange. That's called index investing when we invest in whole indexes. So there are many, many ETFs that follow the performance of the TSX, of the S&P 500 in New York, the NASDAQ. So these are really easy ways that you can diversify your investments without actually having to buy individual all the stocks in the TSX, which you can imagine would be quite cumbersome and expensive because there would be a lot of commissions involved with that. These are also, there are also ETFs that are available for cryptocurrencies. Now they are really focused on the big ones, the ones that I mentioned. Uh, But what you can do is you can buy a certain number of ETFs uh, that follow the performance of a number of different cryptocurrencies or maybe just one cryptocurrency and all you really have to do is watch how that ETF is doing. You don't necessarily have to worry about uh, keeping any passcode safe or uh, keeping your key safe. All of that work is done by the investment firm that you bought the ETF from. So that is one way that you can legitimately get Uh, involved with cryptocurrencies. You can invest in cryptocurrencies without taking all the risk that seems to be still around when it comes to using uh, cryptocurrency and investing in it. Now, I do want to stress that it's still what I, you know, what is called an alternative investment. It is very volatile. It can be affected by even a social media post by a celebrity that has a number of followers. Uh, One of the most famous ones is uh, Elon Musk when he changed his uh, logo to the Dogecoin, or he tweeted, I believe, a picture of Dogecoin, which is a type of cryptocurrency, and that cryptocurrency's value shot up. And so you can imagine that, you know, negative or positive news about any cryptocurrency um, shared by a celebrity, especially one like Elon Musk. I mean, I put him in a celebrity bucket because everyone knows who he is. That's what the definition of celebrity is. Um, Then uh, that can definitely, uh, you know, cause a lot of swings in your crypto investing. And so if you are investing in any cryptocurrency, please use money that you are not relying on. Now, I know that's really easy to say for me. And then someone listening might say, who has money that they don't rely on that they don't need? But what I'm really saying is don't put all of your retirement savings into cryptocurrency. Don't go all in on your kid's education fund on cryptocurrency. Don't use money 
that you later will need for maybe a down payment on your home. So it's not necessarily, nobody wants to lose money, obviously, but this is money that if you were to lose it, it wouldn't affect your lifestyle. So if you are going to be investing in cryptocurrency, use a small amount of money, start slow, see how it works. Use one of those uh, methods that I, I talked about, ETFs. You can use a crypto exchange. If you really want to buy right from the source, you can actually buy Bitcoin right from the source, but then you have to be really responsible for making sure you keep all the passcodes and everything safe. So when you want to access it to sell it or trade it for something else, that you can actually do that easily. There are so many stories of people who have lost not just millions, hundreds of millions of dollars because they lost the passcode uh, to maybe some Bitcoin they'd had since 2011, 2012, that now is worth so much more, but they don't know how to actually access it. So that is my uh, PSA for this week. Uh, if it comes when it comes to cryptocurrency investing, don't be afraid of what's been happening uh, in the headline news with. Um, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, use it as a cautionary tale to be careful where you put your money. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's still not a legitimate way for you to grow and diversify your investments. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation uh, with the professor from the University of Guelph, uh, Guelph with about the grocery code of conduct. I think it's really important for us to understand exactly what is happening there. It's really about the relationship between supplier and grocer. And also talking a little bit fun with the holiday travel. I think it's always good to know that there are ways that we can save money on our holiday travel, be it through loyalty points, be it through uh, shopping early. Uh, but if whatever you can do to get somewhere and have a nice holiday, if you could do it a little bit cheaper and maybe enhance your experience a little bit, uh, I think that is going to be a good thing. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you got something out of all of those conversations. Uh, thank you to our technical producer, James Petrovic. We will be back here next week, same time, same place. I'm Rubina Ahmad-Hak, and this is For What It's Worth.